On this episode of Talks Now, we are going to have a bit of a fun crossover episode. So toxicology is everywhere, and even when you're studying the humanities, you find a ton of toxicology, especially in the works of William Shakespeare. So today, on this episode of Talks Now, join us as we talk botanicals and metals and envenomations, and most importantly, of love and loss, tragedy and comedy. As always, if you love or hate the show, you can tweet at us in iambic pentameter at TalksNow or leave sonnets or other comments in the iTunes store. This is how most people find out about us. Joining me, Matt Zuckerman, in this episode is Nick and Robin Brandyhoff. Nick is one of our graduating Tox fellows, and Robin is his very, very talented wife. Uh, hi, I'm Nick Brandyhoff. And hi, I'm Robin Brandyhoff. Okay, and uh, Nick and uh, Robin were, uh, I don't know, duped into coming today or, or nice enough to come today. Um, but for a while now, I have been fascinated about uh, Shakespeare and poisons because there's a lot of poisoning in Shakespeare. And uh, I thought if only I knew people that knew a lot about those topics. And then at a baseball game, it came up uh, that you are each experts and under the same household. Uh, I'm not an expert in Shakespeare at all. I'm a, trying to be an expert in poisons, but Robin is really the Shakespeare expert. I would love to be an expert. However, I have a very strong theater background, so that's where that comes in. But I love Shakespeare. Okay, so you're, you're dramatic. Okay. <laughs> very. Very dramatic. And yeah, so this is going to be a great opportunity today to look at uh, some of the poisons that occur in the different plays of William Shakespeare and uh, kind of link that to some of our tox knowledge, throw down some tox knowledge. Uh, is there a particular play that you want to start with or, or poison that you want to start with? Uh, <clears throat> no, I think, um, you know, the doing the research, I think the most talked about was Hamlet. Um, and, well, sort and that's of, the one everyone's seen, right? I think so. Hopefully. In the beginning of Hamlet, we find out that Hamlet's father was poisoned by his brother, right, Claudius. And so um, Hamlet's ghost, Hamlet's father's ghost, is talking to young Hamlet. And here in Act 1, Scene 5, he says... Upon my secure hour thy uncle stole, with juice of cursed hebanon in a vial, and in the porches of my ear did pour the leprous distillment, whose effects hold such an enmity with blood of man, that swift as quicksilver it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the blood of the body, and with a sudden vigor doth posset and curd like eager droppings into milk the thin and wholesome blood." So did it mine, and a most instant tetter barked about, most laser-like with vile and loathsome crust, all my smooth body. So Quicksilver is Mercury. It yeah. has nothing to do with the passage, and there's no Mercury in Hamlet. Yeah, there's no, there's no Mercury, and it's interesting because that entire scene is, um, they're pouring the poison into his ear, and so going back and trying to figure out what will be systemically absorbed via ear to cause death is a... Uh, there's a short list. Okay, and it's not mercury. It's not mercury. I feel like mercury would mercury wouldn't do so no, well because me metallic mercury, actual quicksilver. I mean, there, it's quicksilver because it flows and it's fun yeah. to play with. But you don't really. It has very low bioavailability through most routes, so you're not going to absorb that at all. Um, I feel like just, you'd feel it too. You'd wake up. 
a cold mercury in your ear. I could see that. And it's obvious. You get up, you look at your pillow, you're like, there's, there's mercury on my pillow. Um, mental note. Okay. They do talk, they do talk about this Hebanon, which they sort of think might be you. It might be henbane, might be hemlock. Um, apparently you would fairly systemically absorbed if you can pour it into the ear. It's a leading theory. Okay. So, um, so you, uh, was poured into the ear and then what would have happened to Hamlet's father? With you, he would have sort of had these, uh, initially sort of CNS depressions and then convulsions, um, and then potentially death though with you, you have to take quite a bit in order to die. And you don't think you could get that much into the ear? I mean, if it's a big ear, I guess. <laughs> so you is a the scientific name, I think is Tex, Texas Baccata. Um, sort of the entire, the entire uh, European U plant is considered toxic, I think, except for the berries. Um, it has an alkaloid uh, taxine, which is the major toxin in it. Um, and generally it just sort of orally, uh, you can sort of get, uh, you can make teas, you can chew on it, um, which I don't recommend, but you end up getting sort of accelerated heart rates. You can get convulsions, collapse, coma, sort of the seizure coma death route. Um, apparently if you chew on the, the leaves is the most toxic. So I could assume you can make a tea out of it, maybe give it to somebody. Maybe that's how he, he died. That's true, but you have to cool the tea down before you administer it to the ear. But I agree with you, yeah, if someone puts something in my ear while I'm sleeping, I generally wake up. And then it seemed like looking at that, because this word, um, cursed Hebanon, is wonderfully vague, because Shakespeare made up a lot of stuff. Yeah, he made that word up as far as uh, poison goes. Um, the other things they've sort of discussed is uh, the, the H may have actually been a G. Um, and so... There's another, there's another sort of made up word that, uh, in medieval times may have been a poison present at that time. They also consider hemlock, nicotine, belladonna, um, along with some other things, but it's, it's hard to say cause he doesn't, we don't really have any symptoms to work off of just that he died. Yeah, that's true. And I think that like, um, whenever you look at these descriptions, they're always like, and it could have been hemlock. I feel like that just gets thrown in there. Maybe there was hemlock. And then as a toxicologist, you're always like, which kind of hemlock, which I'm sure we'll talk about further. But, and then when Hamlet tries, so further on in the play, Hamlet tries to like convince other people that this might've happened or like, he does other stuff, right? Right. So actually these group, this group of actors come to the castle and he has this idea that he wants them to act out a scene called the mousetrap where they will actually act out the scene and they will pour a poison into the ear of one of the actors. But the line that the actors use is actually now mixture rank of midnight weeds collected. And so that sort of alludes to this idea of hemlock being used because back in the day, it sounds like they always collected these hemlock roots or hemlock leaves late in the evening at around midnight. And that sounds like witchcraft. It does. Burn the witch. Okay. Yes. Uh, yes. And so, Nick, so when we say hemlock, is, is, that, is that horribly obvious? No, because, I mean, it depends on if it's, I don't, does water hemlock grow in England? I don't know. I feel like historically poison hemlock is the more, uh, more used toxin. 
with water hemlock being more toxic. I'm going to, I'm going to check. So one of my favorite preparations for this episode was, uh, from, uh, Nelson et al, the handbook of poisonous and injurious plants, um, which has very pretty pictures of very bad plants. And so after such looking, essentially what we found is that the Secuta species, depending on the species, can have different distributions. By and large, they are largely found in North America. However, uh, the Secuta virosa can also be found in Europe. And so mainly talking North America, but also Europe. All right. And so uh, when we talk about water hemlock, uh, we normally talk about poison hemlock, but just to talk about water hemlock for a moment, what would that look like? So, so poison hemlock versus water hemlock. Water hemlock sort of is a GABA-A ag- antagonist. So essentially what you see is refractory seizures um, that is pretty potent. Um, I also was always taught to remember that the last place you want to seize is in the water. Uh, and so I remember it that way. I also remember it because it, it has a um, hollow stem so it can float versus a uh, solid stem in poison hemlock. Okay. So diving to poison hemlock, even though both are poisonous, yes. uh, usually when we say hemlock, we're inferring that we're talking about poison hemlock. Uh, and now we're going to talk about Socrates. So Socrates, the, the idea, though there is some, there is some, uh, speculation on this one too, is, you know, he was poisoned to death, uh, with, poison hemlock, which causes sort of a curare-like paralysis. So this, uh, I forget the, the term he says, but when this, when this poison reaches my, my, my <clears throat> diaphragm, I will no longer live. Essentially it's an ascending paralysis that occurs. So is this is Socrates' last words? I believe so. That's what, that's theoretically, who, who really knows? The Greek, you know, the Greek were a weird kind. Well, according to Val Kilmer in Real Genius, it's, I drank what? Yeah. Yes, that's, <laughs> wow, we're just, we're going to <laughs> some great cinematic lore here. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a nicotinic agonist, which is going to ultimately cause uh, paralysis and a curare-like effect. And uh, th- because they did not have a general endotracheal intubation uh, back in those times, uh, you would just become paralyzed uh, and die. It also seems like there's some discussion about some mental effects too in some places, which is the hard thing about doing research on this. A lot of times you'll get messy reports of clinical effects. Or of reports that are 2,000 years old. I don't know why Hamlet has to change the poison for the play. That's a good question. I believe it's because this was a scene that was already in existence that the actors knew, but it was very similar to what actually happened to his father. So that's why he went with that one. Okay, similar to like when they recently did a remake of Julius Caesar with a uh, a lead actor that looked suspiciously like our current president. Though that was old material, it was seen as a commentary on current events. Indeed. They they do propose Belladonna uh, as also potentially one of them because you can dermally absorb that through the ear. Though I don't know how he would get a large enough dose to... To sort of seize and die from that. Tincture, tincture of tincture of tincture of belladonna. Yeah, and a perforated membrane. Right, yeah. Although wouldn't that just run out his nose? And I guess into his throat. And Orally, there you go. Yeah, there you go. And so what would the belladonna look like? So, I mean, belladonna is sort of your typical anticholinergic looking picture. 
um, where he would sort of be altered and hot as a hair, dry as a bone, mad as a hatter. Uh, took enough he could seize to the point where, you know, he could potentially become uh, asphyxiate uh, and die, but I doubt that's it. I'm I'm a fan of the U. You're a fan of the U. I'm a fan of the U. Hey, U's guys. Yes. Another good reference is the Poison Garden website, and uh, it's a great website because um, the uh, curator of that website loves to, uh, John Robertson, yeah, John Robertson loves to like um, when someone writes a news article that's like person eats seed and dies. He loves to like kind of troll them and tell them about how that plant wouldn't cause that. And uh, so uh, the Poison Garden website is a great resource. He has a actual Poison Garden in in Europe, in just south of England or just south of London, I think. That's pretty cool. It's not all that dangerous if you don't touch them. A lot of a lot of toxicologists have a poison garden. I believe uh, Lewis Nelson's book actually stems from his initial toxic garden. Patil has a toxic garden. Farmers have reported cases of poisoning in cattle when dead ewe clippings have been dumped on grazing land. I have seen that. Apparently, the the toxicity in cows is like two hundred milligrams per kilogram, which is quite a bit. But in mice, it could be as low as twenty milligrams per kilogram. Hamlet. Anything else that we should say? Uh, Hamlet is fantastic. I love Hamlet. Um, uh, so I see. Also in summary, so Hamlet is kind of faking crazy. Then you're not sure if he's crazy. Then uh, the girl that really likes him dies. Then everyone dies. Then Fortinbras storms in and says, "Okay, enough with this shit. We're done." Uh, and then that's the end of the play, right? That's a beautiful summary. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then uh, next up, I think, given that what you didn't mention is that you two are two star-crossed lovers, <laughs> uh, sadly cursed by a Tox Fellowship. Yeah. Um, and a PhD program. And a PhD program. <laughs> um, so next up, we'll talk about Romeo and Juliet. I guess so. That was a great segue. Um, well, there are a couple of poisons in Romeo and Juliet. The most interesting one to me, though, is the one that Friar Lawrence gives to Juliet in order to fake her own death. Um, that way she and Romeo can meet up again and sort of run off together. And so in Act 4, Scene 1, Friar Lawrence tells Juliet, Take thou this vial, being then in bed in this distilled liquor, drink thou off, when presently through all thy veins shall run a cold and drowsy humor, for no pulse shall keep his native progress but surcease. No warmth, no breath shall testify thou livest, the roses in thy lips and cheeks shall fade to paley ashes, thy eyes' windows fall like death when he shuts up the day of life. Each part, deprived of supple government, shall stiff and stark and cold spear like death, and in this borrowed likeness of shrunk death, thou shalt continue two and forty hours, and then awake as from a pleasant sleep. So how in the hell does that work? That's beautiful. Yeah, because if we tell you that apart, so so it's a distilled liquor, which is not uncommon, right? A lot of a lot of extracts are essentially just um, liquors. And then um, so there's there's no pulse, so they're pulseless. <laughs> um, they're not breathing. They're, they're not breathing. They're uh, they, yeah, they're cold. They they lose the redness in the cheeks. So either vasoconstriction or maybe just a lack of pulse. Um, although eventually, if you lose your pulse, you get you it's get like really you're rosy. Gonna not gonna yeah, you get real rosy after you die. Yeah, and stiff. Uh, 
And it says that actually each part deprived of supple government shall stiff and stark. So rig- essentially rigor mortis. Yeah. Um, but you don't die. No, but you, you don't die. Um, uh, yeah. It, it almost sounds like the, the friar roofies Juliet, but I would, I would go like pento bar or maybe a large baclofen overdose. That's true. Although with baclofen overdose, you do sometimes get some. Maybe that's the uh, rigor. The spasticity uh, is the rigor. Interesting. Okay. But I don't think they had that back then. So baclofen was not available. It was on shortage. Uh, Definitely not available intrathecally. Okay. That's true. And then what else? You said barbs. And the barbs are great at putting someone to sleep. The problem is getting them to wake up. Yeah. Okay. But how long long does she sleep for? Two and 40 hours. That's the... Or 42 hours for those of you who don't like to do math. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, so looking through sort of some of it, there's theories on whether this was sort of, again, the Tropa Belladonna, uh, Bulrush, um, Herb Leopard Bane. And then there's a theory about it being Tritototoxin, which is kind of an interesting theory, except that Tritototoxin didn't exist back in this time well tetrodotoxin existed well it did but i mean the the english people didn't know about it till james cook went to the south pacific no the poor pigs in 70, 1770 and um yeah apparently a few several of his men became very ill from it because they ate, would eat the fish and become sort of have this per- paralyzed uh state and where did they get it? So, so which fish did they eat? Was it goldfish or trout? Oh, or? The, the pufferfish, man. Pufferfish. The, the fugu? The fugu. Okay. So they said, we want some fish. They were sailing. They were from Britain. They were used to bad food. And they said, while we're away from Britain, we really want to get some good food. Because that's what you do. Fresh sushi. Fresh sushi. But they did not, they had not yet captured their Japanese sushi, sushi chef. The guy from The Simpsons was busy. Yes. And so they, they ate, they ate the fish and then, uh, so what, uh, what happens with tetrodotoxin? So tetrodotoxin is a, a sodium channel blocker, um, that essentially causes, uh, a paralysis, uh, of the muscles along with uh, potentially causing some seizures. Um, there's, there's reports with a lot of, uh, Captain Cook's, um, men that they'd have picture, they'd have these periods where they thought they were dead. And then a day or two later, they would wake up and sort of explain they, they just couldn't move. And so, yeah, so Romeo and Juliet, I guess, you know, like GHB would put her out, but then she'd probably pull the tube out and then like, like they'd be, be all short lived. Yeah. Um, ketamine would be great for like catatonia, but the point of ketamine is you'd still be breathing and you'd probably still have, um, perfusion. And you feel like the pulse would still... Be very present and fast. Yeah, that's true. That's a great point. So I wonder if Shakespeare was just um, uh, exaggerating a date rape, uh, date rape drugs. And then, but Romeo is kind of an idiot. Isn't that the theme of Romeo and Juliet? They're young. They're like 14 or 15? Yeah, they're like 13 and 15 or something like that. So they're really young. They, you know, are impulsive. And so he doesn't go to the same prior. No. So he actually goes to an apothecary because he knows, air quotes, that his love has died. And so um, he gets a poison from the apothecary who tells him, quote, 
put this in any liquid you will and drink it off. And if you had the strength of 20 men, it would dispatch you straight. I guess that's the implication that Romeo does not have the strength of 20 men. Sure. Kind of like, you're sort of a weakling, but this will even take down a big guy. Yeah. Okay. And then he dies, mm-hmm. and then she wakes up, and then she realizes that he's dead. Yep. And then she's sad. She stabs uh, herself. She she stabs herself. Mm-hmm. Where? That's a good question. I don't think they ever actually say. So it could be anywhere. Wow. That's baller. I have to say, Romeo just takes some poison, and Juliet wakes up and literally stabs herself to death. You know, when love is that strong, dot, dot, dot. And they, they didn't have sex, did they? They did. They, uh, they got married um, before Juliet ends her life the first time. And they had a wonderful night together. Okay, like Twilight. Okay, yeah, I get it. Yeah, very much right. so. Very good. Less glitter. <laughs> Next up, we get one of my favorites, because it's so dark, uh, is Macbeth. Um, so in Macbeth, basically General Macbeth and his friend Banquo, they sort of received this prophecy from these three witches that Macbeth is going to become the king of Scotland. And before we get to the really cool three witches part, I just have a personal question. So in disbelief, Banquo wonders when they see the three witches, um, if they had imagined the whole thing. And he talks about insane root. Is that a thing? What is that? Um, I feel like you can... There's a lot of plants that would cause you to be quote unquote insane in the brain, in the brain. I've, you know, Jimson weed comes to mind. Yes. And I thought about Jimson weed moonflower because Jimson weed will cause an anticholinergic delirium. Yeah. But there's a problem with Jimson weed in this context. Well, the root doesn't is not poisonous. And Jimson weed is a new world plant. Oh. So I, it yeah. has spread outside of the new world, but it's traditionally from the new world. So it wouldn't be and in the so old world. It might, well, it is now, but not then. In the yeah. old, old world. Uh, but certainly I was thinking like an anticholinergic delirium. Uh, I tried to Google insane root. I got some links to insane clown posse. And, um, and then uh, you went down the juggalo dark hole. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it also talked about uh, henbane being possible and henbane being uh, hallucinogenic. Uh, did you see anything about henbane? Um, I did see, I saw a lot about henbane. Um, I saw some about sort of the Jaria species uh, and then the mandrake, which Shakespeare references sort of all over all of his work. Well, everyone loves the mandrake and we'll talk about the mandrake because it's incredibly creepy. Like okay. there's, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, just yeah. the mandrake. Like there's a lore around the mandrake that is ridiculous. I just think of Harry Potter with mandrakes. So. Everyone does Harry Potter. Most people get their botany nowadays from Hogwarts. And so, uh, but so Henbane, Hyosiamus uh, Niger, uh, which has um, what kinds of toxins in it? So <clears throat> has scopolamine, atropine, high osamine, um, along with maybe some other toxins in it. But those those three alone can cause you to have a nice anticholinergic episode um, that would cause you to sort of have these maybe these hallucinations. Though I find that my anticholinergic patients are much less mobile than they were in Macbeth. 
That's true. But the other thing I think is what you're seeing with that is it's the antihistamine effects I find that often causes the sedation. And that overrides the delirium. While the anticholinergic effect is still there, you don't see it as much because they're literally unconscious. Um, But if they take a smaller dose or... Microdosing. Microdosing, <laughs> yes. <laughs> microdosing. Yeah. There's no microdosing Na- in Shakespeare. Naturopathic dosing yeah. of yeah. There's no LSD uh, microdosing in Shakespeare. But the um, but also if you see someone who overdoses on these, and then once the antihistamine effects wear off and they wake up, they do tend to be pretty wacky. Yeah. Um, and so I think you make a good point. Um, I don't know how antihistaminergic Henbane was. I think it's quite, I think it's quite. Yeah, that would make sense because it's got all those antihistamines. So maybe it was a microdose. Um, uh, So that would be one form of insane root. But then the other thing is it's an insane root. And so when we think of uh, roots, uh, sometimes I think we think of mandrakes. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking initially when I sort of read that. But do you know why they're called mandrakes? Um, uh, uh, Robin? <laughs> Harry Potter? No, so they look like creepy children. Uh, they they look like the roots look like a man. Yes, I win. Is why they call them mandrakes. No, so they have a lot of they're really active sort of alkaloid that cause anticholinergic pictures, and they're really hallucinogenic. Apparently, um, they can uh, sort of be so anticholinergic that people can seize from them and die. But if you take them in the appropriate dosing. Um, you can get sort of the the typical blurred vision, dryness, difficulty urinating, dizziness, vomiting, so on and so forth. Uh, and then hallucinations are very prominent with the mandrake. Yeah, because they're of the, as you see commonly, they're of the Solanacea family. So they have a lot of anticholinergic effects, um, the hyoscyamine and the scopolamine. Um, I'm stealing this quote from uh, the Poison Review website, which has a great article entitled Toxicity from Mandrake Berries Used as a Sexual Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I think there's a whole subcategory of toxicology related to sexual AIDS, but uh, this is, uh, he's quoting first century historian Josephus, who said, quote, a furrow must be dug around the root until its lower part is exposed. Then a dog is tied to it, after which the person tying the dog must get away. The dog endeavors to follow him and so easily pulls up the root, but dies suddenly instead of his master. After this, the root can be handled without fear. That's that the dead horrible. dog method. That yeah. seems like a dick way to kill your dog. Yeah, seriously. Well, it's... I mean, at least it doesn't say like the child wraps a rope and then the child attempts to follow the father. The third wife grabs the... Yeah. Juliet ties a rope around the root, attempts to follow Romeo. Like, yeah. Well, so Shakespeare talks about mandrakes. He actually cites it specifically in four different plays, Antony and Cleopatra, Othello, Romeo and Juliet, and then Henry IV, Henry IV, part two. But he always talks about mandrakes as being sort of a sleeping syrup or a sleeping aid. Is there anything, any truth in that? I mean, if you get anticholinergic enough, you get pretty significant CNS depression. So you definitely get sleepy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Macbeth also talks about a couple other different things. So mm-hmm. mainly at the witch's cauldron, they talk about poison entrails. They talk about a lot of things. So um, I'm just going to sort of summarize. But some of the really cool things that they talk about is um, they throw in all of these ingredients, right? So um, among these ingredients, they include a liver of a blaspheming Jew the nose of a Turk and the finger of a baby that's been strangled by its prostitute mother. 
Beyond that, though, they also include, um, quote, root of hemlock digged in the dark and slips of yew. So like, we kind of come back to that hemlock and yew. He really likes his yew and he his really hemlock. Does. You wonder if Shakespeare's audiences were like, what, what, just, what did he just say? Yeah. Uh, another one of Shakespeare's plays that doesn't end well. Antony and Cleopatra. Does not end well. That's it true. Does not. Um, there's no poison in that. However, she does kill herself with an asp or many, many asps. Yes. And it always makes me think of uh, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the, I think the leading theory on that is an Egyptian cobra was the asp that bit her. But, you know, there's plenty of venomous snakes in Egypt that can get the job done. Yes. Uh, asp is actually an anglicization of the word aspis. Oh, which, so maybe a viper? Uh, used to mean uh, venomous snakes. Oh. Uh, well, multiple venomous snakes. Um, but it sounds like they do think that in Egyptian mythology, they thought it was referring to the Egyptian cobra, which is not uh, not one of those uh, snakes that you want to have as a pet. Uh, not, no, at least without, not your license in Texas. Texas makes you get licensed? That sounds very un-Texas. Well, you pay $20 for per snake and you can own whatever you'd like. That's the Texas licensing of snakes. This, yeah. If you want to breed them, it's $60. Okay. Well, the, the Egyptian cobra has, uh, I believe, an alpha neurotoxin um, that would sort of cause postsynaptic blockade of the acetylcholine, causing sort of a, a flaccid paralysis to occur. There's likely also to be some hematologic and cytotoxic venom in uh, cobras, but the 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 main the main cause of death would have been paralysis within uh, several minutes to several hours. Though so it would have probably still been pretty painful. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, while it's kicking in, you get local effects and pain and swelling and the hematotoxins sometimes can cause bruising and blistering. And then you're going to get headache and nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and dizziness and then flaccid paralysis, which seems like that'll be a noisy, messy. It it sounds like it would have been a messy, smelly death. Sort of an uncouth way to go. Yes. Interestingly enough, uh, unlike some other African cobras, uh, the Egyptian cobra uh, does not spit its venom. That's good. Because if it spits a venom, you don't really get much toxicity other than your eyeballs. Um, so, yeah. So, our next play, we're going to end on a little happier note, thankfully. Thank God. Right? So, this is one of those comedy romances, Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, no one dies, obviously, because it's a happier one. However, um, the king of the fairies decides to get a love potion from a flower. It's a... He describes it as a... Um, it is a flower shot with Cupid's arrow that has petals which turn from white to purple. And when the juice of this flower is squeezed into a person's eyes, it call, it causes them to sort of fall in love with the first person or thing that he or she sees. So I guess my curiosity is what is this flower and what does it actually do? I think the leading theory behind this one is the the wild pansy or viola tricolor just due to the white to purple coloration to it um, they also call it love and idleness uh, which they actually directly cite in the play um, it's also caused the jump up and kiss me flower the tickle me fancy flower is that like the tickle me Elmo? the heart's delight flower 
Yeah, similar. That's actually how Tickle Me Elmo got created. Oh. Someone drank, got too much of the wild pansy. Um, <laughs> but there's actually uh, something called cyclotides. There's also some cytotoxins present. And then it actually uh, has some, uh, it's supposed to release oxytocin, which is sort of the love uh, love hormone. It's caused sort of this love potion. Um, they might be spot on with this one. I'm not sure. Um, but given that the fairy made it, who knows? Why not just some fairy dust? Because different fairy. Way different fairy. Yeah. It's not Never Never Land. Oh. Really? No, different fairy. Wait, so, I d oh, that's great. I love that idea, though. So so we've got the color, because we'll put a link, but the picture really is this white to purple petal yeah. and the release of oxytocin, which is kind of like a bonding chemical. Yeah. Uh, uh, the eye thing is probably totally untrue, but interesting. Uh, and, okay, all right. See, I read that, and I was like, all right, so what makes people fall in love? And I was like, uh, MDMA. It had yeah. to have been... MDMA. Is that love or is that just lust? Well, it's a it's a you know a, a serotonergic intactogen that uh, increases your perception of relationships to those around you, and sometimes leads to um, bruxism and uh, great dancing. Though not always, not usually MDMA. Right. Well, be careful what your source is. That's true. Although, given that MDMA is a synthetic amphetamine. Um, so, uh, yeah, so 1912 being after Shakespearean times, they would not have had MDMA. There was also no mention of hyperthermia or hyponatremia or SIADH. Mm -hmm. So I do not think that, uh, that they're talking about MDMA and then or bright lights or suckers. That's true. The suckers are important for the bruxism. And then the other thing realistically is that whenever you talk about a love drug or a love chemical, one of the uh, most common agents used uh, uh, in terms of uh, lowering inhibitions and sometimes leading to drug-facilitated sexual assault, uh, even though we love to talk about um, short-acting benzos and GHB, uh, one of the most common agents is still alcohol. And certainly during Shakespeare's time, uh, excessive consumption of alcohol uh, could sometimes lead to um, sexual assault. Did I just make a comedy and a romance kind of about yeah, rape? Yeah, no, I think Sorry. you went a little dark with that. I was <laughs> Sorry. trying to end on a happier note. Midsummer Night's Dream. Basically, in the very end, um, everyone falls in love with the right person and the two pairs of young lovers that should have fallen in love and been in love in the first place end up being able to get married and have a good life. Everyone ends happily. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here with these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck, now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long, else the puck a liar call. So good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. Thank you, Robin, You're for restoring welcome. amends. That was quite perfect. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, that closing from... Uh, 
Midsummer Night's Dream, and I hope you enjoyed uh, some of the fresh take on approaching toxicology in Shakespeare's plays. Certainly, maybe not the most EM-focused type of our tox uh, podcast, but uh, an enjoyable way to approach the subject, talking about the sodium channel effects of the U, talking about the various types of hemlock, um, and additionally talking about the differential diagnosis of a of a young girl who seems to be uh, stiff and uh, pulseless as well as uh, different types of love agents. And I hope you enjoyed it. I want to once again thank Nick and Robin for joining us today, and I look forward to the next episode of Talks Now. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Talks Now is produced with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. That's Socrates Johnson, you know. Socrates Johnson, you learned your, yes, exactly, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Keanu Reeves' finest cinematic masterpiece. Uh, I would have to say, although John Wick is pretty good. John is it as good as Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? I'm a fan of Bogus Journey. No, Robin's a fan of no. the Excellent Adventure. It's so Shakespearean. Don't care if you're a king or a lowly street sweeper. Sooner or later, you're gonna dance with the Reaper. Yes, that's Shakespeare, <laughs> Bill and Ted. I am so proud of you for having spouted that from memory. That was amazing. Oh yeah. Well, I just read the tattoo on my arm. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs>